Welcome to the Local Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Berkland. Really excited to have my two guests today, friends of mine for quite a while, and guys whose business outlook I admire, uh, Nate Fredrickson from west of Spearfish, Jason McLennan from west of Belfouche. Uh, rather than read all your accolades, maybe I'll just start by asking you guys to tell me a little bit about yourselves, how you got started and where you came from and what brought you to where you are today. Uh, Jason, how about you lead off? Well, I moved down here in the winter of 2010, but Nate and I both got started in our Angus cattle, I think it was 07 or 08, we both bought drafts of heifers and kind of started building our numbers up. And then I want to say in 08, he suggested that we maybe form a partnership to try to get those cattle marketed. And so we moved down uh, shortly thereafter, after we'd kind of assembled our cattle, and uh, my wife and I came down and found some land west of Bell. And we moved there in the spring of 2010, and then our first sale was December of 2010. And that sale, I guess, to be clear, is through Pyramid Beef? Uh, yes. That name was created with the partnership to use as kind of a marketing entity is how we formed that and why. Okay. And, and Nate, your background? I grew up in Minnesota. That's where Jason and I met. Uh, grew up in the seed stock business back in west central Minnesota. And then shortly out of college, uh, took a job with a pharmaceutical company that got me out in western South Dakota in Belfouche area. Uh, covered, worked for Novartis and Alanco covering vet clinics and feed yards in western Nebraska, western South Dakota, Montana, and, and parts of Wyoming. Got out here, loved the area, fortunate enough to meet my wife. Um, and I had aspirations of going back to Minnesota and taking over the family business there. But we loved the area so much that we kind of decided to stay here and make this our full-time permanent residence and and uh, so stayed in the pharmaceutical business and kind of grew our cow herd while we were doing that a lot of support from my wife uh, as I traveled quite a bit and and uh, and then in 2011 talked my folks into relocating the ranch and and uh, we purchased a ranch west of Spearfish in 2011, and kind of shortly right around the same time frame that Pyramid Beef was created. Um, like I said, I got my good friend Jason talked into moving out here, and uh, so yeah, that's kind of it in a nutshell. Now, in my conversations with Jason, he says you talk him into a lot of things. Is that just part of your sales technique overall, or are you using him yeah. as a launching pad yeah. for your... Well, he talked my Norwegian wife into relocating from Fargo, and, you know, she grew up within 60 miles of her family her whole life, and so that was his first successful sale, to my knowledge. I'm getting us So the here. sales deal comes naturally to Nate's what you're telling me. He's gifted. Gifted. Oh, I don't know about that, but I enjoy the... I truly enjoy this industry, enjoy working with the people, and and uh, love love the service side of the aspect and I guess that working in the pharmaceutical business gaining a lot of contacts through the feed yard side and the cattle side and, and taking that and, and utilizing it to help our customers here now in the seed stock business whether it be marketing feeder cattle or replacement heifers or whatnot but I truly gained a lot of knowledge uh, in them 15 years in in the sales business. So you mentioned your other revenue stream before you committed to ranching full-time. Jason, you also have a, another means of generating revenue. Can we talk about that a little bit? When I was in grad school, I was a meat science and ruminant nutrition student. And for no particular pathway that I was trying to choose, the meat science is what kind of dominated the research side. And so tagging along with a couple different professors, they kind of got me into some different technologies that measured carcass composition. The one I was actually researching was called bioelectrical impedance and so in my lit site you, you had spell to that for me I'd i cannot no, okay i cannot not without my cell phone handy <laughs> but in the lit site you had to kind of uh, research other alternative technologies and ultrasound was the one that actually was a the most researched but also the most widely used and so shortly after grad school i got involved in that industry because the seed stock industry was starting to incorporate it into uh, formulating their EPDs for the carcass traits. And so I've been doing that since 1996. And at that time, not many breeds had recognized it, nor were implementing it. And I think there was only roughly seven to 10 technicians on the whole continent, not just the country. So it was very, very much in the infantile stages. But it's grown into something that's readily used now with every association, and I'm still doing it to this day. 
And you have customers across what trade territory, roughly? Well, it used to be 17 states. We've whittled that down since moving down here to primarily the eastern, or excuse me, the western two-thirds of North and South Dakota, and then eastern Wyoming and eastern Montana. So both of your, well, your current, I guess, Jason, at your former sales territories, do they overlap where your current bull sales customers live today? And is it an overlap of customers or just a... Nate's more so than mine. He was a little bit more localized with his territory than I was. Yeah, it, uh, like I said, we probably don't send a lot of bulls to, you know, the extreme parts of my territory, and, and I worked a lot with uh, the feed yard side of it more so than the cow-calf side or and the veterinarian side. But uh, without a doubt, there's, there's definitely a lot of overlap uh, within both sides of the business. So, uh, Jason, you said that the Angus industry or the Angus Association was more in tune with the, the ultrasound in the beginning. Is that what led right. you to the Angus breed, or were you already? No, no. I had good friends in college that were came from Angus breeding families. And in 1992, I was in a wedding up in the northern part of North Dakota, and one of my good friends wanted to take me back to their operation, which I'd heard about, knew about, knew they had a national reputation. And then just going through those cows kind of got a little bit enamored with what they had to offer. And so within a couple weeks of that trip, I bought my first Angus cow. And then that operation actually kept her on site, and everything I had essentially went back to her for until 2006. So you've duplicated those genetics or improved upon that same base set of Well, that was the start. That was the start since then. Uh, you know, we went other places to expand because, you know, having something housed by somebody else, there was no room for growth there. Yeah. So I think in 05 or 06, I started having aspirations to get into another enterprise besides just the ultrasound. I thought the most natural fit would be the seed stock business because at least I grew up into it to some level, not the level like Nate did, but on a smaller scale. And so talked my bride into diversifying, and she at least gave the nod. And so then I bought replacement heifers from a reputable outfit uh, in North Dakota, I think, in the fall of 2006. And some select cows from a dispersion sale over by Aberdeen. And what were those genetics? Well, that dispersion sale was all SITS-influenced cattle. It was a heck of an offering and a big offering, but it wasn't a secret. I thought it would be because I thought I could go in there and buy a whole semi-loaded cows, and that sale was very, very successful with very little promotion behind it. And uh, it was red hot. Cattle sold themselves a little bit. I went to get 40. I got eight. Yeah. Uh, Nate, your background in the Angus side of things, uh, are you running the genetics well, your family has forever? Or? Yeah. we got to back up a second. We got you bet. Angus and Hereford here. We can't leave the, the Hereford side of it out. We I was actually get spent there. two to three generations in the Hereford side, and then we added Angus cows in the early 90s. Um, both lines, uh, we've kind of stayed in that maternal line, uh, but yet got ability to perform in the feed yard and just basically real functional middle-of-the-road type cattle. We don't, uh, both Jason and I, we don't try to chase extremes. Um, we sell our bulls on, you know, phenotype and disposition and, and, and carcass data, and they got ability to perform when they, when they leave our operation and, and also leave our customers' operation. So we've like I said, we've just kind of stayed in the middle and, and tried to be true to our philosophy, and, and uh, so far it's it's seemed to be working. I know in the last few years, and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself again here, but in the last couple of years you've tried to help people market their, their feeder calves off the cows. Um, can you take me down that road a little bit, what you're, you're doing towards that end? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's something that, like you said, I hate to uh, back up and over-promise and, and under-deliver, but... One thing we've been able to do is utilize some of them contacts I've had in the pharmaceutical business, uh, feed yards or consultants that I've worked with that that always have an interest in good cattle. And, and uh, by no means am I in the order buying business. Uh, I just like to help our customers add value to their calves. And if we can find a home that is willing to pay for that value, to me is it's, it's a success uh, for everybody. Um, like you said, it's just a service we provide. I feel I get paid uh, when our customers come and support us at our bull sale. But it's 
to me, I'm a firm believer. I mean, there's a lot of good cattle out there today. There's many good seed stock operations. And so if we're going to separate ourselves from the competition, we'd we feel we need to offer that full service approach and, and uh, more as a partnership working with our customers and, and again, helping them <coughs> add value, whether it's replacement heifers or feeder steers and, and helping them find a niche and something that they can be, set themselves apart from their, you know, just commodity type cattle. And, and uh, just was on the phone yesterday with a gentleman from Iowa that received a load of heifers from a customer and, and uh, sight unseen was very ecstatic. And, and uh, so it's, like I say, it's very easy to market good cattle for customers. And so it's using them relationships and, and helping them add value is, is what I really enjoy. I, I enjoy raising the cattle side of it too, but I love that aspect of it. So that service is more making an introduction between the producer and the playing the middleman. Yes, the feedlot guy, and you know, kind of playing the middleman and, and allow that communication. And and uh, and not every not every one of them work great. If we have some health issues, we can at least get that communication back to them. Them ranchers, if we need to tweak some vaccines or we need to do some other things. I mean, we had a load of cattle that we sent. Uh, from a rancher last year that we did have some health issues, but it was that communication between the feeder and the rancher. We got the vet involved and we got it worked out. So, I mean, that's, that's a lot of it is just opening that communication window. And, and many of these deals turn into long-term partnerships. We got, uh, we're sending three loads of steers next week to a feeder in Minnesota that's had these same cattle now going on four years. And, and that's where it really gets exciting when they build that relationship with the feeder and, and the rancher, and, and uh, it's a win-win for everybody. There has the to customers be. almost expect it now, too. You yeah. think about when we started, bulls were, I'm talking breed association values for both Herbert and Angus, were less than 3000 per bull. That was the sale average. And in 12 years, it has doubled for both of those breeds. So just think of how vested your commercial cattleman is into his genetics something else has to come along with that you know because profit margins haven't changed much so the service side is really where you can make up some ground and hopefully give him more return on his investment added value for that bull buyer and maybe less risk i would like to think that the the feedlot side of it they're getting a little more consistency and predictability once they've fed a set of calves with similar genetics over a number of years that has to well, and equally as important, they give you that feedback because yep. us as seed stock guys, you need to know where you stand with your gene yeah. pool too. Are you adhering to industry standards or are you not? And we may need to tweak things too based on what they're seeing on that end of it. We, we've learned a lot from it as well. It's a, kind of a work in progress deal. And, you know, and, and a lot of the chatter today is carcass quality, and that is very important and, and something we strive to continue to prove on. But as it's amazing when you get into working with these feed yards firsthand. I'd say number one, without a doubt, is is health. And uh, if they stay healthy, I mean, that's uh, 65% of the, the model for success. And after that, they have to be able to perform. And that's been somewhat of a, you know, not a slippery slope, but where you try to manage. Uh, we want to keep that cow herd very maternal. We want to keep the cow moderate, very efficient. She's got to be able to go out and do it on, you know, a little amount of, of groceries, and especially in a year like this. But on the same token, when we send these cattle to a feed yard, we can't get them too small or too conventional. We, mm-hmm. These cattle have to be able to get to that feed yard. they got to be able to take a steer to 1,350 and 1,400 pounds. And, and now with today's dynamics, it's not only 1,400 pounds. These, mm-hmm. these guys are finishing these steers at 15 and 1,600 pounds. So they still have to, we have to maintain the ability for them cattle to grow and so trying to, like I said, balance that between providing a moderate cow that, that works well in, in western South Dakota, eastern Montana, and eastern Wyoming. So as you transition both of your operations from Minnesota to western South Dakota, did, did the cows you bring with you fit this country, or did you have to change your approach and your breeding program a little bit to make better range cows out of them, do you think? Mostly. I mean, I think that's one thing what drew us together in the first place. We had a very common idea of what we liked in terms of cattle phenotype. So you kind of end up, you kind of do business with folks you have a similar vision with. And he and I like the same type of cattle, both breeds or regardless of breed. And so we had the hypothesis that the type of cattle we liked would work out here because we favored the management style out here 
and the more range conditions versus what either one of us grew up in and preferred the less infrastructure, you know, in favor of more range for more days of the year. And, and uh, I'd say for the most part, we were happy with where our cattle stood, but we're never done tweaking it. We find failures and success every single year within our own operations. And you just hope at the end of it, you have way, way more successes to pass on to your customer. And that's what we're trying to do. And that's been the challenge, you know, as we, we've had some success where we've had the ability to grow, but to grow in a rate where we keep that same that's quality, right. uh, that same set of bulls from obviously everybody's got a top and a bottom, but, you know, we want people to come to the sale and, and uh, that top pen and the bottom pen, there's some difference, but not a lot. And so just because we can grow numbers, we don't necessarily do in the aspect of the quality ain't there, they won't be there. So, so as that's been a challenge just to, you know, as we try to grow and scale, maintaining that same, same quality that we did when we sold 50 bulls. And we've stayed true to that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we've, and I mean, it comes at a cost because you're trying to keep a balance sheet in order. You're trying to grow. We've always been in growth mode. We've never caught up to that quite yet. And one of the limiting factors is, is keeping that quality there all the way through that cow herd to ensure that those bulls are what people demand of you come that first Saturday in December. So how do you balance that culling quality between the the maternal side and the, the bull side as you're breeding? Do you, you call the heifers for the heifers and the cows for certain attributes at the end of each cycle and then make your, I guess you're making your bull decision prior to that, that culling. So that has to add a little challenging dynamic to your. Oh, I think we're both phenotypically driven enough as I, I mean, first they got to meet your eye. I mean, with what you're looking for. And I mean, we have that ideal animal of what they kind of look like from a structure and design standpoint. And then the other criteria, both of the breeds that we work with have so much data at your disposal, that also comes into play. You know, they have to, they don't have to be in the top one percentile for any one trait, but they at least have to be competitive. And so between those two things and knowing what our vision and what we want those cattle to look like out on the range and, you know, especially for the next guy that's going to perhaps own them, you know, we try to build our whole population to look and be just like that on paper and physically. You know, and today with the tools, uh, obviously AI has been around forever. We do a lot of embryo transfer uh, work, and so we can create more full brothers and then, uh, you know, offer some different lines for our customers. And when I say that, we stay true to our philosophy in the aspect of of every, each one of these lines has got to work in terms of a cow basis. The feet quality have got to be there. The disposition's got to be there. The udder quality has got to be there. But even when in our own operations, we have some lines that are going to be more moderate, mm-hmm. um, you know, more smaller framed if, if conditions, you know, feed conditions are very concerning. And then we got some higher horsepower lines where the, you know, so they got different options to go. With that horsepower comes a little bit more frame. Um, the unique thing of us in terms of running two breeds is is we can give them customers an option. I mean, they can keep, stay very maternal on their Angus herd, keep their cow size in check, and then come back and put a big old stout Hereford bull on there, take advantage of the heterosis and, and, and performance, and, and get that calf weaning weight, get that performance at the feed yard, and, and keep their cow size in check as well. So. There's, like I said, we try to provide different options, and we spend a lot of time with our customers. We try to be at their place. Uh, we don't make it to everybody's place, but if we can be there once a year to see what their goals are, to see what they want to do, and and try to see if we have something that fits. Um, the one thing I've taken dear to heart in the sales business is, you know, you you don't want to sell your customers a product. You want to sell your customers a solution, and and. Uh, that's kind of the model we've taken. If, if we can help add value, we feel we have a place. And, and if we can't, we can't. So uh, just that's kind of been what we've been trying to accomplish. And Nate building that bridge to the feedlot side of it, I think that's helped because now we have a more complete story to try to give as feedback back to those operations. And they're thirsty and hungry for it, too, and want to listen to what you have to say. I mean, it's remarkable to me how interest, interested these folks are knowing how their cattle do all the way through. There's a thirst for it. And it's uh, like, I hate to say sometimes in this business or any business, it's not as much what you know, but who you're fortunate to know. And and that communication gap is, or communication is so important in this business. And I mean, just the word of mouth, uh, like we sent 
some heifers down to Nebraska last week, and, and uh, oh, a couple days ago I got a call from a neighbor of the gentleman that had got these two loads of heifers in and wanted something similar type and kind and seeing if we could help fit that order. So, I mean, it's as you as that snowball starts to roll down the hill, it's fun to see it kind of increase as you can broaden your communication base and find more people that are wanting to uh, or needing those type of products or type of genetics. And, and, again, we can help more and more of our customers. How many bull sales are we in now together? This would be 12. 12, 12 yeah. 12th one. And you started them at the sale barn. Correct. Yep, sold St. Ange for five, six years. Yep. And you've been west of Spearfish there now for, I guess, six years probably-ish. Is that Yeah, so when I, six, yeah, I can't remember. 2015, I, I completely retired or quit from the pharmaceutical business, and we built a, f- a small feed yard and a sale facility to handle the the bulls out there. Um, Justin Tupper and St. Ange Livestock treated us tremendous. We just wanted to kind of showcase the product on our own place. And and uh, as you know, bulls, you, you move bulls around, they get anxious, they get or- ornery and get to ride. And so it was nice to be able to just leave the bulls in their pens, move them into sale pen that morning. And it's been a been a nice transition. And, and that way, when customers come, you know, weeks before, they they're easy to show them around. We can show them the cow herd. You know, just it's really helped our marketing side of it. See how they're developed. There's just a lot more information they can get from coming on site like that versus how we used to do it. And my memory fails me, but you've started offering some heifer sales in conjunction with the bull sale. About four years ago. Yeah. Well, before that, it actually, I think we attempted it, the heifer calf inbred heifers at St. Ange, maybe that last sale. A few customers that we kind of had uh, and a lot of those are heifers being sold by your bull sale customers exactly that i mean it would be exclusive to that are you noticing trends over the last 12 years now of of bull buyers coming and you mentioned nate the ability to through embryo transfer have full brothers and or at least half brothers or when people show up are they wanting to buy one family line for their herd of cows or do they scattered out and buy some cow bulls and some heifer bulls or Oh, you have a little bit of both. Uh, there's no doubt. There's definitely some operations, and they try to, you know, for two years they select a sire group, and so they want to try to buy half brothers, and then so when they come back on them sisters, they kind of have a program so they they know they're not getting too line bred or whatnot. So being able to offer more of that has dang sure been a beneficial, and and just like anything, economics of scale is it's harder to do that at 50 bulls than at 200 bulls. And so if we can kind of try to keep our sire groups to a minimum, four to five sire groups a year, that gives our customers a lot of opportunity to buy, you know, very similar type bulls, similar genetics. And your your sale bulls are two years old? Most. Most. 80% of them. Yeah. Yeah. We've started uh, offering some bull calves uh, in the last three years that will, there are, primarily our embryo transfer calves and their older calves they're born uh, out of out of our commercial cows that go up in our forest permit and uh, we've been offering them as bull calves and then wintering them and and delivering them in the spring as an option as well from the female side of it i mean we can approach this a lot of different ways i guess that's part of the the fun of the conversations are folks coming to you looking to get bulls to start their own seed stock program now are you, are you to that stage of development in your your bull sales or are you still primarily focusing on providing commercial cow calf operations with we're pretty blessed to live out in this country where the cow calf industry is so huge but i mean it's still by and large us trying to market to commercial cattlemen we get a few registered folks that have interest in what you're doing but that's a different almost a different marketing channel you have to be what they're kind of seeking at the time where our commercial guys are a pretty driven bunch of folks that we run into. They're top-end operations that are super successful in their own right, whether you existed or don't. We're lucky enough they've chosen us to say, you have something we like, and that's who we kind of rely on. So I, I know part of the answer to this, but I'll ask uh, for everyone else's information, uh, you know, repeat customers. You've had some for every year that you've had a sale? We've had some that go back to that very first sale. Yeah, that's got to be pretty rewarding and feel like a pretty big compliment to you oh absolutely yeah you depend on them so when you were 10 years old is this where you wanted to be when you were 
approaching uh, middle age? Well, I wanted to be a rancher, but I didn't know the pathway there. You know, our family wasn't a large enough operation where you knew even in your teen years that there was not some way you were going to go back. And I remember when I was a senior undergrad student at North Dakota State, I thought I'd start up a feedlot from scratch back in my hometown. And so I approached a bank in my hometown, and and I had everything organized and spelled out exactly how I was going to do it. And he giggled, and then he said, you need to think of something else. And so I went to grad school, and then 15 years after that, decided I did want to raise cattle, and at that time had a little bit better idea of how to maybe do it and go about it. And this partnership probably facilitated that more than anything. It had to be a fairly easy decision to move to Belfouche area because... I jump on this soapbox probably too often, but I think the best cow-calf operations in America are within a 300-mile radius of Belfouche. I, mean, I do miss the wind and snow in <laughs> January north of Fargo, but no, it's been a pretty easy transition. I'm your host, Clay Berkland. My guests today are partners in Pyramid Beef, uh, Jason McLennan, Nate Fredrickson from Spearfish and Belfouche. Uh, we've covered their entrance into the seed stock business and some of the successes of their sale over the years. Uh, all successes come at a price, and one of those prices is facing a lot of challenges along the way. Uh, 2020, 2021 have certainly faced us with uh, probably some overall environmental challenges that we, we don't like to talk about in our business because we, we like to avoid the bad conversations, but they are a reality of cow-calf production. That's the, the drought and the impact it has on herd sizes. Um, a lot of heifer retention decisions made. Uh, how are we going to breed these cows for better sale if they're going to exit our place? Uh, I'll open up the box and let you guys jump in and answer the questions I'm vaguely asking. Well, I mean, it's been super challenging for two straight summers, this one probably being the more severe because now you're into year two. But the one thing about the registered business, you're not immune to the same exact things in terms of ranching that all your commercial customers are going through. And this one's so widespread that everyone's kind of got skin in the game and having to make the same tough decisions. What's been neat, since we're somewhat new to the area, is most everyone we work with has a plan in place, and they just start implementing it, and we can learn from that. So, you you know, we're doing the exact same things that they've already thought out or had to go through at some other point in their own operations. But at the same time, we don't want to overreact to what's happened in terms of climate and be prepared for what's on the other end. And this recent snow, I think, has breathed a pile of life into the whole region as to now you gear up for the next year and you want to be one of those folks that's prepared for it and to take advantage of it when it's moving the other direction. I'll put a date stamp on this. Uh, We sit here October 26th. uh, Within the last two weeks, uh, the bulk of our customer area has had somewhere between two and up to five inches, I guess, of moisture that we've had reported. Um, so that certainly brings some optimism to the table as they enter their bull purchasing season. And you, Clay, you say, I mean, optimism, and I think everybody in this business, I mean, obviously we thrive on optimism. Sometimes we question why we're even in it. We're working for next year. Yeah, we're working <laughs> for next year, you know, but it's, I'm going to tell you, it is a huge concern. I mean, it, mm-hmm. uh, we were planning on growing. Uh, I mean, we're planning on adding 30 to 40 bulls, and in a year where it's going to be dry, Probably not such the best decision. I don't. We haven't quite made uh, what our final tally will be, but we might hold some bulls back for the spring. Uh, you know, if it goes to rain. But but with that being said, I mean we we have to stay optimistic. I think the market's working in our favor. A lot of our customers are selling calves lighter than they did last year due to the drought, but they're selling them for for more dollars. And right. and uh, so. Hopefully that keeps going in the right direction. The cow numbers, um, we we do need these feed yards to start making some money because when they make the money, they pass it right on to the, to the commercial side of it. You know, our, where we send a lot of these calves are farmer feeders back in uh, Minnesota, Iowa, and, and South Dakota. And, and uh, with the corn market the way it is, they're starting to make some money there. And so if we get some rallies going in this cattle deal, which I think are a strong possibility, we could be set up for some really good times in the next three or four years. And so, you know, we're just working with our customers and hoping, um, you know, if they only need half the amount of bulls they normally do, those half will be from us. Um, right. That's all we can try. We can't expect any 
anybody to to do anything they're not comfortable with and and we just want to know we'll be there right with them and and helping you know market their calves as best as we can or or whatever that may be but i am excited for the next couple years it's uh, kind of like going to vegas here this whole feed deal is has <laughs> gotten really expensive uh, music but, to a banker's ears Jason. <laughs> right? yeah, yeah that's where pioneer bank comes in handy is it's uh, and i appreciate the, you know they're willing to step out and because we've had to buy a lot of feed and a lot of very expensive feed just like our customers and the question is how many heifers how many cows do we keep you know and if we knew it was going to rain this deal is going to get really wild but but again that's it's all uh, foresight but with that being said, just just captivating on the optimism out there is is kind of what we thrive on, what we have to. But to say we don't have a lot of restless nights in the next month and two weeks is is going to be an understatement. Uh, go through a little bit more Prilosec this time of year and right. and uh, <laughs> whatever it is. But. but even that being said, you know I've decided to stay the course. I mean we've made decisions to instead of downsizing we have every intention of trying to keep pushing the thing ahead and it's that optimism that's out in front of you and i don't know of a single customer of ours that isn't in the position to kind of do the same they've made changes and altercations but they're all still ranchers by trade and and they're going to act accordingly it's hard to sell that grass we have growing out there into anything other than the cow right. and, and make a calf out of that we send to feed somewhere that the the good and the bad of our country is that it's not a lot of not very diverse alternative yeah method to deliver that grass somewhere than but that's one reason we moved here yes we loved the amount of cattle that were here where even your school teachers run cattle your businessmen in town run cattle you know we didn't live in areas like that previously to where that what that's what made it super exciting is to get where you can talk shop with almost anybody you come into contact with and that led to opportunity there's people to maybe do business with and sell genetics too so it has to be a little challenging for you as you i mean do you have a set sale lineup every year where you try to have a third heifer bulls, a third commercial cow bulls, or you know, is, is there any? No, and part of that's driven because of what we expect of ourselves for quality. But selling two-year-olds, you're already at somewhat of a disadvantage for being overloaded on the heifer bull market. That yeah. should be favor the yearling bulls that are sold. That's also why Nate incorporated those yearlings because more of them that sell are heifer suitable and on, on a percentage basis than are the cattle and our two-year-old thing. It also makes it more fun than the two-year-old thing because you can be a little bit more monovisioned in your focus of trying to make good, stout, sound bulls without as much focus on, say, low-low birth. You still have to keep them sensible, but, you know, if they're coming for two-year-olds, they're wanting power. Yeah. And so that's what we try to provide at higher percentage of the offering, that is. And how much of your decision-making is based on the, the most popular bull in the business? You're you're making your decision based more on phenotype and how it affects. Oh, I think yeah. more times than not. Yeah, you know, and the thing we try to do is, I mean, we're no doubt using quite a few proven bulls out there. We work closely with, uh, oh, cattle resources. They do our vet work, and, and then we do some AI stuff with Tim. And and uh, But with that being said, we also use several of our own bulls and, and AI to our own bulls and kind of try to separate ourselves a little bit in that aspect uh, so we don't have something that everybody else has. If we have that kind of mix, it kind of we want to kind of try to create our own identity. Absolutely, yeah. I think people are starving for a uniqueness because if it's something that's super popular, then you're not giving them much of a reason to show up on your particular sale day. There has to be a reason for it. So the quality has to be there, but I do think there has to be a level of uniqueness in your gene pool and your operation. Uh, to get them to kind of keep wanting to come back or want to show up there the first time ever. And the sale this year is the 4th of December? 4th is that? of December, 1 p.m. sharp, mountain time. So between now and then, you have to, what, finish up football season, volleyball season? What what else do we have going on in our lives? Well, we are husbands and fathers, so uh, we are reminded every day at the breakfast table about that. But sale-wise, there's a pile of work that has to happen between now and then, you know, getting our catalog prepared, getting the bulls videoed, getting the bulls pictured. All your advertisement campaign starts now and runs through sale time. So there's plenty of labor-intense things that will happen before then. But that's uh, it's a lot of work, but that's the beauty where a partnership comes in is we kind of been able to spread some of – you know, duties to different, Absolutely. you know, Jason and myself and then my wife has since uh, 
she's home full time and does a lot of the book work and working with the websites and and uh, advertising. So if we can kind of spread things out and and find what we're all good at, and it, it really helps. And that's the beauty of a, the partnership side of it. You also have some free labor coming through the system right now. Your kids are all are yours both teenagers yet, Nate? Or? I got a sixth and an eighth grader. We're getting close and. And uh, we're starting to get get some help out of them, but you know the saying that they're tw- tw- 24 months apart, and so they're at the age where one boy is is a lot of help, two boys are no help. So if we can kind of <laughs> split them up and put them different directions, we can. They're they're pretty good help, but but no, they're we don't push them real hard. To, you know, if we want them to want to want this business and and want to be involved in and because it's it's a tough deal i mean this egg deal is is not easy and if you don't Don't want it and have that passion passion, you know there's way easier ways to make a lot lot more money and and so it's fun to see them kind of take interest on their own and and jason son as well and all of us kind of run our deal where everybody has their own cows and and our boys are able to you know, build a small cow herd and, and see some of the success, and hopefully that helps pay for some of their college or whatever they choose to do. And you mentioned free help. Is that what you said yeah. at the beginning of yeah. this segment? Yeah. I'd, I'd say based on appetite, that <laughs> that's not accurate. Now, your daughter is at the – is she on her way or at the National FFA I think convention? she's in still commuting. She got on a plane, I think, around 8 or 9 this morning to head to Indianapolis for the National FFA convention. And then she identified some other folks from the region, so they were all on the same flight, some kids from Sturgis and other surrounding communities. So, so you haven't totally burned any of your kids out on agriculture yet because it sounds like the, I know your boys are showing steers and going to the state fair and that kind of stuff, Nate, and – your daughter's an FFA, and right. the, they're not running away not absolutely yet. scared yet. No, no. <laughs> you got to push them a little harder. Right. No, I mean, it's hard to kind of predict where any of our kids are going to end up. I do think we at least see signs in all of them where there's interest, and like ours have always been super good help, too. And, you know, so they're doing everything you could ask of them at this point. And then, you know, selfishly, I do hope that they have an interest when they become adults and make that decision themselves. But that... We'll have to just see how, how it all plays out. Academically, it looks like they'll be able to, able to go to a better college than you did. I, that was a cruel <laughs> attempt at taking a stab at a very beautiful institution with an exceptional football program. Well, better than mine, I'll admit. Right, right. Nate, I'm going to tell on you a little bit. You also have a side gig, I think, selling some beef locally to folks. Is that that's kind of my wife's side of it. Uh, she started doing that when she quit her job. She was in the probation business, and no, that's not how we met. <laughs> <laughs> that was the but next question. Anyway, right? <laughs> she the the stresses of that and and needing more help on the ranch. She she quit that here two years ago, and then kind of as a sideline started doing that, and and it's it's not a big part of our business, but it's a nice uh, way to add value to to some of our genetics that don't make it on the seed stock side and and uh, f- we can help provide some good meat to uh, people around spearfish area it's it it's been a nice fit it's it really hasn't needed any extra investment uh, you know the challenge is is we've been doing this for years but now finding enough kill space and mm-hmm. and spots to to get this beef is has been the real tough thing that everybody's dealt with but i laugh fairly frequently i i talked to folks around spearfish and they'll uh they'll kind of look over both shoulders and see if anybody's listening and let you know they've been buying some some meat from fredrickson's and you'd think they're buying cocaine in a back alley somewhere <laughs> it's their best kept yeah. secret they and don't want anybody else to know that they're <laughs> being close to spearfish you know that's that's a bigger population and there's there's a lot of you know since there's been a lot of interest for you know locally raised meat and there's several other operations in our area doing that and, and seeing a lot of success and and uh, I think it's hopefully something that we'll see continue into the future um, but again it's something we're going to have to get more um, harvesting space if if it's going to grow much past that that's been our limiting factor without a doubt is is having enough cattle or, or having enough spots to fit the cattle and, and what We've been more doing as our open heifers and stuff like that, not so much retaining steers. Uh, we send all the steers. They've been going to a feed yard in eastern South Dakota for, for quite a few years, and 
So we've just been using the open heifer side of it for our for the butcher beef. Nature you know. diversifies your customer base, though, if you're used to yep. selling just bulls to seed stock guys. But this gets you into a different walk of life of folks that happen to live in the region. It's a great way to educate them on what you're doing. And there's such a starvation right now for folks wanting to know where their food comes from. So it looks like a natural fit, depending on what kind of scale it can grow at. Yeah, food safety and food security continues to gain more uh, momentum on a national scale. I think people are are wanting a little more all the time to, to be able to identify and even relate to where where it's coming from and if they can say well we know those guys and we're eating meat growing on their place that makes them feel kind of good about what they're where they're buying and what they're buying and and then when they get to enjoy the quality of it as well that helps right. a great deal so absolutely and that's going to continue to be more and more of a uh, topic in our industry and and you know the key word everybody's talking about is sustainability and and knowing where your meat comes from, how is it raised, and whether we know as, as ranchers and producers that we're doing it in a very sustainable way, but sometimes myself, uh, as much to blame as anybody, is telling the customer, telling the, the person living in city how we do it. And when you can get that connection, I mean, they they all of a sudden think we're pretty pretty cool people. And, and uh, you know, one thing looking into the future, I'd I just got off a four-year term at the American Hereford Association as a director, but we have an endowment fund that we utilize for research. And and uh, we were I was just down there in Kansas City for meetings last week, and, and one of the topic was investing money in a in uh, some of our trial work on capturing methane data. Um, there's these new Sealock uh, making these new machines that can. You can put them in a feed yard pan, and they can kind of capture the methane. And so, does it add any money to the to the actual value of the product? Not necessarily, but if it's something we can tell our story and prove that we're not, you know, we're not the enemy in terms of producing methane or whatnot, but just trying to be proactive and and keeping this industry sustainable and and for generations to come, because it's. Um, everybody, I mean, with social media, you see the backlash we can get in terms of being Quickly. non-sustainable or not environmental friendly. Um, we have to continue to tell that story. It's one of the challenges of our business. Uh, it's so easy to get busy fixing a water gap that's gone out in a recent rainstorm and the bull that got out with the neighbors, and, and you're so busy taking care of the small tasks. It's it's hard to, to some days cover topics that we do need to present to people outside of our industry that we are a good business, we are a clean business, we are family businesses. We do create a lot of economic opportunity in the areas that we live in. Um, and one bad picture on CNN at night can throw all that in the ditch real quick for us. And it, it's hard to, to find enough time to allocate to telling that story of ourselves. But it is something very important that we all can participate in and, and hopefully do. Well, that disconnect from consumer to the producer, I mean, just think of how it's shifted so violently in two generations. Your grandparents knew where their food came from because they were probably, even if they were in an urban area, were a part of it. Now, food is so readily available in so many forms, I just don't think there's much thought even given to where it comes from. And we're generationally removed Absolutely. three, four generations a lot of times now from agricultural production. Might be the only positive of a global pandemic is that actually created when your supply starts to dissipate or is no longer there all of a sudden they do start asking questions we start looking for that beef locally at that point that's right yeah and it's uh, going back to that meeting where we were down in kansas city and got to listen to some good speakers and um you know there was a gentleman there talking on sustainability and and um, you know future of the of the cattle side and i know everybody's concerned on the fake meat side and it's definitely an issue but it was very appealing to see him talk about uh, the fake meat deal not getting near the traction that they they'd planned on and and how he talked about a pile of uh, fortune or silicon valley investors dumping money now are are wanting returns and the returns aren't necessarily there and you know he talked about whole foods if sometimes whole foods the grocery company you know not always being the friend of the of the beef producer, but putting backlash on that because it is not a whole food. It does not stand by what they're doing. And so, I mean, that it was good to see that that is always going to be there, but to say it's going to have a major impact, it, it gave us some breath of fresh air that maybe it's it's not as big an issue as, as we're sometimes worried about. 
It just shows if you have the better product, it'll reveal itself. So on every show, I ask my guests to mention some mentors they've had to them getting where they are today. Um, Nate, Jason, who's who's been influential to you and how to, to get you to the point you're at? Honestly, Nate's dad. You know, I knew him before I knew Nate, but I see where Nate gets his optimism in the industry. You know, you can see how, I mean, Mark's been a part of it for how long? 40-plus years? Yeah. Independently yeah. and grew up in it, you know, far, a diversified operation, Catalan agronomy. But, you know, he has always been one of those folks that is so very well-read in the industry. He educates himself constantly, and he's not afraid to share that with anyone that's willing to listen. And he's always helped the youth whether it's through a junior show or if you just happen to be on site. I mean, he shares his knowledge and experiences with you, and not many people are willing to give that of themselves. And he's one of that is, and I'd say, and even cattle philosophy. I mean, and that's why Nate and I probably have the same interests, is his type of cattle were the type of cattle we liked. And so he would be the main one for sure. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, i got to give kudos to to my mom and dad just a little backstory on that is is clay asked what did you want to do when you're 10 years old and i mean i've known i wanted to be in the seed stock business from from 10 and on and but i was was a cow kid stuck or cowboy stuck in farm and country in in west central minnesota and we had a beautiful place back there but you know the writing on the wall there was every you know a lot of grass is getting turned into farm ground the cows are leaving and and so knew if I wanted to be successful in this business we probably needed to to go where the cows were and and so I came out earlier but then uh, was able to talk mom and dad in along with the help of having a couple grandkids in bait. to move or bait <laughs> to bait them out here uh, they fully relocated our place in in Minnesota and I mean for for a couple to uproot it in their 60s is and, and make a whole new set of friends and a whole new life so I mean they put a lot of faith in and it's been a good move, but uh, without a doubt, wouldn't be here without them. And that's the thing, you know, we're, this egg deal is tough enough, but without generational help, I mean, it's mm-hmm. getting tougher and tougher. And so it's, um, we got to have family and, and uh, been fortunate to have family in this business. Otherwise, I easily could say wouldn't be where I'm sitting today without, you know, my mom and dad, my grandpa and grandma, I got, and uh, so on, so. That's one of the fun parts of attending your sales, seeing the, the generations are working together. Yeah. It's we, how our business I thrives. know Nate would agree with this, too, but since we've lived here and you start marketing bulls to different operations, there's some of those customers that are his dad's generation, but there's also some that are ours. And some of those folks are such excellent operators. We've learned, I'd call some of them mentors, because just how they run their operations in terms of every single detail and how detail-oriented they are. There's a lot that we've learned from some of those folks and how they operate, and I think it's made us better too. You don't want to be less of an operator than the guy you're doing business with because he's going to come to your operation and identify it. That's how good they are. Yeah. So it forces you to up your game too. Rise to the level of the competition out there. That's good. And we just sell to so many folks that are just exceptional at their craft. I mean, and that's been so enjoyable because, like I said, you're not only learning something – but they're just great folks to do business with. So advice you would have to young people that want to get to where you are today or where you're going in the future? Get a really good relationship with your banker. <laughs> no, And an understanding it's, bride it's, with lots and lots of patience. Both good pieces of advice, any yeah. others? Yeah. No, it's just the passion and, and it. And it don't be afraid to step outside and do something else for a while. I mean, that for both of us, we have up until five years ago had outside sources of income that helped us get where we're at today. I mean, the amount of capital you need to do in this business, it's its hard to start right out of college when you're in your early 20s. And and so having other sources of income is, to me, is, is something that's really helped both of our deals. And it, it also got us going, got us going, but it it made us know this is what we want to do. So there was no regrets. If I would have came home right out of college, you know, I could always wondered what, what else could I have been doing? Well, I, I worked for corporate America and it was great, but I know I don't want to go back. And, and so it's, it makes it easier to get up in the morning and, and, uh, put those long hours in. So and if you talk to the previous generations, it's never been easy to no. get into there. It's never, ever been easy in agriculture, whether it's the agronomy side or the livestock side. It comes with a lot of labor. 
a lot of risk. The overhead has always been an issue. Uh, it seems more ramped up because there's such bigger numbers now that it becomes overwhelming, and you ask yourself, how in the world could we have gotten to this? But I think the level of risk has never really changed. But what has changed is the options to that next generation of what they can do for a living, and now you're competing with that. So if that passion's not there, uh, they probably have no business in it. You know, you, it's got to be there or it's just going to be too difficult. It to is stomach. a full-time commitment. There's no That's question right. about that. You know, and the other thing that, you know, we don't need to necessarily get caught up on is it's amazing, you know, uh, you can do this business and not have to own a big block of land. Land ties right. up so much capital that, um, you know, if a guy has a smaller land base and, and for the amount of cows that Jason and I both run, I mean, we we own it. I don't very small percentage of right. that and and so there's just because you don't have that big place I mean I wouldn't use that as a limiting factor in terms of you know being in this business it's um, there's a lot of opportunity out there and, and a lot of luck I mean it just right. being at the right place at the right time when a certain piece of property comes available to lease or whatnot and the one thing in this area you know it we're getting more and more absentee landowners that that aren't running on the land and so provide some opportunities for younger people to lease more property. And so that's that's one piece of advice I'd give is it's, uh, you know, don't have to have that big ranch to, to run the and cows. And the next you want. 10 years are going to be super interesting. Our industry is still dominated by older cattle and landowners, and that will have to turn over at some point and how and to whom. Uh, but I, that's where we stay enthusiastic because we still have aspirations to keep growing. And so if those opportunities are available for us and the next generation that we're raising, uh, we hope to be able to be in a position to take advantage of it. One of the <coughs> excuse me, optimistic things I always try to look towards is a, I heard several years ago that the world runs on protein. And globally, we still need to produce a lot of protein. Right. And at the end of the day, we're in the protein business. And we're, I think, the most efficient and the best producers of protein in the world. Uh, I do think the opportunity will still be there in front of us. We just have to find different ways to address the occasional drought. <laughs> what, what else may Absolutely. come up as roadblocks? Oh, without a doubt. You know, and to me, the, the neat thing on the cattle industry, you know, is you, you hear the word vertical integration. And, and, yes, it might get streamlined a little bit more. But, you know, you can't put a bunch of cows in a, in a pig barn or a, in a big dairy facility where you can concentrate other industries, the poultry, the, you know. So, to me, that keeps us the independent producer in the driver's seat on that deal. I mean, the feeding deal, obviously, it's getting more consolidated. You know, the packer deal, we, we don't want to go down that road. We'll be here for another <laughs> couple another hours, show, yeah. you know. So <laughs> it's, you know, but us as the cow-calf producers, I mean, I think, you know, with the land base, you know, the, the independent producer is without a doubt in the driver's seat and, and for years to come. Well, we've used pretty much all of our block of time, guys. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap it up here? No, just uh, if you get a chance, take a look at our website. Uh, our catalog will be online here in about two weeks, uh, pyramidbeef.net. Uh, we'll be selling uh, 170 bulls uh, December 4th, west of Spearfish, South Dakota. And if you don't like the cattle, you'll love the meal. <laughs> this is true. Thank you very much, guys, for being on today. I always appreciate our conversations. I always learn a little something. Thank you for your time. Pioneer Bank and Trust, members FDIC.